We thank you that you are here. Thank you if you're joining us by Facebook. But you know, we don't, we're not here to mourn. One reason why it's called Good Friday, there's special, something special, something good that happened on that day. We're here to ponder and contemplate all that took place there on the cross. This evening, I want to focus our attention on a portion of Scripture that is very familiar to us, and that's Isaiah chapter 53. And once again, as I started digging into it, I was blown away by what I found. The prophecy was written about 700 years before its fulfillment at the cross, and yet, in a larger sense, that prophecy is still yet to be fulfilled. This chapter is so monumental that Martin Luther once said every Christian should be able to recite Isaiah 53 by memory. In 1866, a couple of German scholars had studied this and they wrote this, quote, It looks as if it had been written by someone standing at the foot of the cross. Many an Israelite has had Isaiah 53 melt his, heart, uh, his hard heart. Isaiah 53 is the most central, the deepest, the loftiest that Old Testament prophecy ever produces. The roots of the Christian gospel is all here. In fact, it's been called by some scholars in the past the fifth gospel, the one before Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. It was Augustine who said way back in the 5th century, it's not a prophecy, it is a gospel. Now it might surprise you that the clearest explanation of the meaning of the cross and the death of Christ is not the book of Romans. It's Isaiah chapter 53. There's no New Testament passage that is as clear or as rich or as deep or as full an explanation of the death of Christ as this chapter written 700 years before Christ even arrived. So this evening I want us to look at the Gospel of Isaiah, chapter 53, as we remember what Jesus did on the cross for us. Now the... the book of Isaiah is actually a, a whole glimpse of the entire Bible. I'd never seen it this way before, but Isaiah has 66 chapters. How many books are in the Bible? 66. Coincidence? Maybe? No. As we know, the Bible is divided into two parts. We've got the Old Testament and the New Testament. There are 39 books in the Old Testament, there are 27 books in the New Testament, and it turns out Isaiah is also clearly divided into two parts. The first section has how many chapters, would you think? 39. And the second section is 27 chapters. Still a coincidence? The first 39 chapters are about warning and judgment. The last 27 are all about grace and salvation. The Old Testament, of course, is of warning and judgment. The New Testament is all about grace and salvation. Let me give you one other interesting note here. In the 27 chapters that make up the second half of Isaiah, they are divided up in three sets of nine. 
The first nine is about salvation from the Babylonian captivity. The last nine is about salvation from the curse of the fu- in, the, in the future millennial kingdom of Christ and the new heavens and the new earth, all about revelation. And the middle nine, it's all about salvation from sin. So you've got past, present, and future. Oh, and the middle chapter of the middle nine section is chapter 53. Chapter, and do you know what we find in the middle of chapter 53? But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. Folks, the gospel of Jesus Christ, right there in Isaiah. I could go on and show you how the first chapter of the last section begins exactly where the New Testament begins with the introduction of John the Baptist and how the last chapter of Isaiah ends uh, exactly where the New Testament ends with the new heavens and the new earth. It's all there. One author wrote this, quote, The scope of chapter 53 is staggering. It starts with our Lord's eternal relationship with the Father in the exalted state of glory. It descends down into his humiliation, his incarnation, his rejection, his execution. Then it goes back up through the empty tomb on Easter to the accomplishment of justification for the many. Then his intercession and then his glory and final kingdom. Chapter 53. It's all in that chapter. And did you know that this chapter is quoted by Matthew, Mark, Luke? It's in Acts, Romans chapter 1 and chapter 2. Excuse me, it's in Romans, and first, it's also in First and Second Corinthians. It's in Galatians, Ephesians, Timothy, Titus, Hebrews, 1 Peter, 1 John. You'll find almost every phrase in this chapter somewhere in the New Testament. This is clearly the gospel. This is clearly the good news of Jesus Christ. So let me read this chapter to you, starting actually in chapter 52, verse 13, and going through 53. See, my servant will act wisely. He will be raised and lifted up and highly exalted. Just as there were many who were appalled at him, his appearance is so disfigured beyond that of any human being, and his form marred beyond human likeness. So he will be, uh, so he will sprinkle many nations, and kings will shut their mouths because of him. For what they were not told, they will see, and what they have not heard, they will understand. In the first verse of chapter fifty-three, who has believed our message, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain, like one from whom people hide their faces. He was despised, and we held him in low esteem. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering, yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by men and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds, we were healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us have turned to our own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter. And as as a sheep before its shears is silent, so he did not open his mouth. 
By oppression and judgment he was taken away. Yet who of his generation protested? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people he was punished. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and to cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin, he will see his offspring and prolong his days, and the will of the Lord will prosper in his land. And after he has suffered... He will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many, and he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, verse 12, I will give him a portion among the great, and he will divide the spoils with the strong, because he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors. For he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressions. Clearly, the gospel of Jesus Christ. One commentary stated that this text is critical because it answers the most crucial, the most significant, the most essential, vital, weighty, paramount question that humans could ever ask. Folks, the most important question that has nothing to do with wealth or health or prosperity or fulfillment or success or education or morality or philosophy or sociology or even happiness. The most important question, the question of all questions, is this. How can a sinner be made right with God in order to escape eternal hell and enter into eternal heaven? That's the question of all questions. Listen, if a religion can't answer that question, it's a false religion. One author says there are only two religions in the world, the religion of human achievement and the religion of divine accomplishment. Either you do it for yourself or God does it for you and you do nothing. It's either grace or works. And as we've worked through the Gospel of Matthew over the past couple years, we've seen how the Jews of that time rejected Jesus and were focused on earning their way to God through morality and and through uh, religiosity. They didn't need a Savior. They were looking for a political deliverer. And when Jesus didn't do that for them, they rejected him and they crucified him. In Luke chapter 5, verse 32, Jesus says, I have not come to call the righteous to those who think they're righteous, the self-righteous, but I've come to call sinners to repentance. So how can a sinner be made right with God in order to escape eternal hell and enter eternal heaven? Well, Isaiah answers that question right here in chapter 53. Before we start looking at that answer, there's one more important thing to note about this chapter. Though this chapter deals with the deity of Christ, it deals with the humanity of Christ, it deals with the life of Christ, the rejection of Christ, the humiliation of Christ, it deals with the death of Christ, the resurrection of Christ, the intercession of Christ, and the exaltation of Christ, listen, it's not primarily a prophecy about Christ. Huh. Why do I say that? Because this chapter is not looking forward to Christ and the cross. This chapter is looking backwards to it. 
kind of like a back to the future scenario. Have you ever wondered why all the verbs starting in verse 1 all the way down through verse 11 are all in the past tense? What kind of a prophecy is that? And why are all the pronouns all plural? We, we, we. Listen, who has believed the message given to us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up. He was despised and forsaken. Surely our griefs he himself bore. He, uh, our sorrows he carried. He was stricken, smitten of God, afflicted. He was pierced. He was crucified, uh, crushed. He was chastened. He was scourged. He was oppressed. He was, he was, he was. All the verbs are past tense and all the pronouns are plural. This is describing something that has already happened. How does that work? How can it already have happened if it was written seven years before it happened? Because what we have here in chapter 53 are the words of the confession that Israel will make in the future when they are redeemed. That hasn't happened yet, but it will. It will. Remember, Zechariah made this incredible prophecy in chapter 12, verse 10. And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and supplication. They will look on me, the one they have pierced, and they will mourn for him. As one mourns for an only child and grieve bitterly for him, as one grieves for a firstborn son. And then chapter 13, verse 1, on that day, looking ahead, on that day, a fountain will be opened to the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the Israel, to cleanse them from sin and impurity. Folks, this, that is a promise of the future salvation of Israel. So what we have here in chapter 53 is a statement that the Jews will be making in the future. God opens up His grace for them and He saves them. And that's when they'll look back on the one that they have pierced and finally get it right. They're going to look back and what we have here in Isaiah is what they're going to say when they repent and see Christ for who He really is. Now let's look at chapter 53. The first thing they're going to be saying is, Who believed the message given to us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? This is the first thing they're going to say when they look back, when the message came, first through John the Baptist and through Jesus Christ. Who believed it? We didn't believe it. Nobody believed it. And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? What they mean by that is that we didn't understand it was the right arm of God. That's a Hebrew expression of the power of God. We didn't understand it was a power of God being revealed to us back then. How is it revealed? By Jesus' power over disease, power over the demonic, power over death, power over nature. And they're saying, we didn't see it, we didn't buy it, we didn't believe it. If we actually go back to chapter 52, verse 13, Jesus introduced, is introduced to us by God the Father. See, my servant will act wisely. He will be raised and lifted up and highly exalted. That description is only used one other time in Isaiah, speaking about God Almighty Himself. In Isaiah 6, 1, I saw the Lord high and exalted, seated on a throne. Same, same description. 
So here in Isaiah 52 and 53, Isaiah is saying that Jesus is God incarnate who comes off his throne and the Jews are going to look back and say, we should have known that it was a right hand of God, but we didn't believe it, we didn't see it, and we rejected it. Why? Well, because the next verse goes on to say he, he grew up bef- before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground. What do you do with tender shoots that pop up in your yard that you didn't plant? You dig them up, right? Get rid of the foolish things. We don't want, it. We don't want those. They're worthless. And this is their way of saying that he had a contemptible origin. He was worthless. Look to them as if he was worth. He came from a, a nowhere town, right? Nazareth. Can anything come, good come out of Nazareth, they said? He came from a nobody family. He was, he, was, he was a son of a poor carpenter, for goodness sake. They couldn't process the fact that the Messiah, God in human flesh, the great long-awaited king, would come that way. Born a major, attended by shepherds. They were the bottom rung of the social ladder. Very unimpressive. Contemptible. Despicable origin. And even when he grew up, he had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. Nothing about him was royal. Nothing about him was regal. He didn't look like a king. He didn't act like a king. And on top of that, he was despised and rejected by men. This is a word that can refer to the, not only the leaders of the Jewish people, it certainly started there, but all, all of them, the Jewish leaders, and by extension, the rest of the Jews despised <coughs> excuse me, and rejected Jesus. He was a man of sorrow and familiar with pain, like one from whom people hide their faces. He was despised, and, and we held him in low esteem. We just looked down on him with contempt. He was despicable in our eyes. Paul tells us in Romans 9.32, they stumbled over the stumbling block, the stumbling stone. And then we come to verse 4 here in Isaiah 53, and we see the spirit of grace that has come on them, and the light has broken. And, the, and, they, and they say this, surely he took up our pain. The Jews of the future will be saying this, and he bore our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. We thought God was punishing him for being a blasphemer. Because he said, I I and the Father are one. But now, now we get it. We know that he took up our pain and he bore our suffering. What a moment of clarity. What a moment of clarity. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds we are healed. And folks, what holds true for those Jews holds true for us today. If we want a relationship with God, we need to acknowledge our sinfulness and the fact that he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. His punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. There's a price to be paid for sin, a high price, a 
penalty must be paid. There's only one price that will satisfy God. And, and Paul tells us that the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Christ and Christ alone could pay that price as a final sacrificial lamb. And the Jews looking back are finally going to recognize it. Jesus was indeed pierced for our sins. His feet and hands on the cross, the crown of thorns on his head, a spear thrust into his side to make sure he was dead. The lamb had to die for you and for me. But they also recognized that though he was beaten and pierced to pay the price for our sin, it turned out to be a wonderful thing. The punishment that brought us shalom, that brought us peace, was on him. And by his wounds we are healed. But then they're going to go further than that in their confession. In that day when, when they confess, that they'll confess not only the things that they did that were wrong or their forefathers had done that were wrong, but they'll go deeper than that. Look at verse 6. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. They were saying that we, we were like stupid sheep that followed every whim that blew across our way. And we turned away from him, and we went our own way. How many people are doing that today? Folks, this is the true doctrine of justification being justified, made right before God. How? Jesus became the one sacrifice that would satisfy God. This is the true doctrine of salvation. We are saved by grace, God's grace, as all of our sins have been laid on Him. And Isaiah is saying that one day, one day when the Jewish nation finally comes around, there will be an incredible realization when they realize that their sins have been transferred as well to Jesus. Verse 7. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before his shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. They're going to remember <clears throat> that their forefathers and Pilate were furious that Jesus would never say anything. He was absolutely silent when they were trying to get him to incriminate himself. But now they will realize why he said nothing. Because he had indeed been the Lamb of God. Innocently being led to slaughter. Can you hear the agony in these words as recall the horrible, horrible things done to the Messiah? God sent one, the very Son of God. How could he be so silent in the midst of all that? Never said a word to defend himself. Never said a word of defense to Herod. Never said a word of defense to Caiaphas or to Annas. Never defended himself to Pilate. Silent. Since when does an accused never defend themselves? But this is the silence that is a result of a prayer in the garden. Father, if it's your will, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, what? Not my will, but yours. Be done. The decision was made. It was God's will. It was God's plan. Why, folks? Because he loves you. And he loves me. 
It's mind-boggling to think that 700 years before Jesus even stepped on the earth, Isaiah was giving all these details in advance. The Messiah will come. He will be God in human flesh. He will be high and lifted up. He'll be rejected because he has such humble beginnings, such unimpressive appearance and credentials, and, with, and such a horrible ending, and, and they're going to reject him and all down through history until the day when the spirit of grace and mercy is opened to them by God himself, and the light comes on, and they, they have their aha moment. And they look on the one they've pierced, and they mourn for him, and they, and they will repent, and a fountain of cleansing is open to them because they will look back on that cross, and they will see it for what it was. And you and I are here today because God in his spirit has come to us with the same spirit of grace, with the same spirit of mercy, and opened our understanding of the cross. Folks, the cross is everything. If it weren't for the cross, we'd still be dead in our sins. If it weren't for the cross, we would still be under the wrath of God. There would be no hope. I may have mentioned this when we were in Africa one time at a dinner with some of our Lebanese Muslim friends, we were talking about the similarities between Islam and Christianity. One of the brothers made this profound statement. The main difference between you and us is the cross. Absolutely true. Verse 8, it says... <clears throat> By oppression and judgment he was taken away. Those are technical terms for a trial and sentencing. Yet who of his generation protested? Who of his generation protested? No one, not one. Over and over again in this chapter, it reiterates the substitutionary death of Christ. Him taking our place. He died in our place. And here for the first time in verse 8, his actual death is mentioned. For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgressions of my people, he was punished. Who would do this to them? This horrible, horrible thing done by those horrible, horrible Pharisees and Sadducees. Those horrible Romans like Pilate and Herod. The horrible crowds that yelled, crucify him. Who? Look at verse 10. Yet it was the Lord's will. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. The Lord makes his life an offering for sin. Folks, it was God that did it. Last week we talked about the sovereignty of God and God's providence using people. It was God's will. And by his sovereignty, he used all those people to accomplish his will. Jesus was God's lamb that he led to the slaughter. John the Baptist introduced him in John 1.29. Behold, the Lamb of God. This is all God. Every father picked out a lamb to offer for his family at the time of Passover. And that was God's lamb, a perfect lamb, a lamb without blemish to be sacrificed as a guilt offering for us. And then in verse 9, Isaiah steps past death. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death. Why was he assigned a grave to the wicked? We, we, we talked about that some a couple weeks ago. Because he was crucified between two criminals. 
But God wasn't going to let that happen to his son. He made sure that his son was going to be honored properly. You remember that God, by divine providence, chose a rich man by the name of Joseph of Arimathea, who came and asked for his body and put him in a brand new tomb. 700 years before Jesus ever showed up, that little detail is recorded right here. But it doesn't end there in the grave. The gospel of Jesus, the good news of Jesus, can't be good news if Jesus ends in the grave. Listen to to the end of verse 10. And though the Lord made his life an offering for sin, he will see his offspring and prolong his days. Something just happened here in that verse. Because when you're dead, you don't see your offspring, do you? Do you understand what Isaiah just said? In that very statement, we've got the resurrection of Christ. He will see his offspring. You know what that means? He will see all the redeemed of all the ages gathered around him. Those are his offspring. And he will prolong his days. That's a euphemism for living forever, everlasting life. It's all here. And then Isaiah says something interesting, and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. Now, we just read that it was a a will of the Lord to crush him and cause him to suffer. How is that now going to be a way to prosper in the land if he's crushing him? Ah, listen to verse 11. After he has suffered, after he has suffered, he will see the light of life. Jesus' death and resurrection, and be satisfied, and be satisfied. Jesus' sacrifice will fully satisfy the requirements of God's judgment. Therefore, Isaiah goes on to say, by his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many. There it is. He will justify many, and he will bear their iniquities. That's how the will of the Lord will prosper in his, in his hand. And one day, all the redeemed, all those who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ will be gathered around him forever and ever. That's the confession that the nation of Israel one day is going to make. One author put it this way, and I quote, They will one day confess the deity of Christ, the humanity of Christ, the rejection of Christ, the substitutionary, vicarious death of Christ to justify the many. They will confess the resurrection of Christ, the intercession of Christ, and the exaltation of Christ, and they will confess that the whole of the redeemed humanity that God determined before the foundation of the world will be gathered around His Son forever in His presence. That's pretty good theology, written 700 years before it all actually happened. And 2,700 years before, and counting, still waiting for the day that Israel will make that confession. Folks, that is the gospel of Jesus Christ, according to Isaiah. And Isaiah goes from past tense verbs, there in the middle of verse 11, and goes beyond plural pronouns used for the Jews and switches to future tense and singular pronouns used for every person who comes to Christ. You and I, verse 11, 
By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many, and he will bear their iniquities. That's the Apostle Paul's theology, isn't it? Romans 5.1, we have been justified through faith. We have peace with God through the Lord Jesus Christ. No, wait. It's not Paul's theology. That's God's theology. That God used both Isaiah and Paul to write. Take a look at verses, last verse, verse 12. Therefore I will give him a portion among the great, and he will divide the spoils with the strong. Who are the great and the strong that he's referring to? And what are the portions and the spoils? Folks, the great and the strong are all those who confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. We have been given victory over sin, victory over death, victory over Satan, because we have the same power that raised Jesus from the dead. So what's the portion and what are the spoils? That's our guaranteed inheritance that God has promised us. Paul wrote in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13 and 14, When you believed, you were marked in Him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of His glory. How is that possible? The end of Isaiah 53, verse 12. Because He poured out His life unto death, and was numbered with the transgressors, for he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. The gospel of Jesus Christ. The good news of Jesus Christ, according to Isaiah, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. The cross is everything. Behold the Lamb. Father, thank you for the Lamb. We praise you tonight. Yes, it's a night that normally when we think back on someone's death and burial, there's mourning, there's grief. But Father, we're here on a good Friday. We're here to rejoice because of what you have done for us on the cross. So many years ago, it was prophesied it's going to happen, and it was prophesied that those of your own people are going to look back and confess and come back to Jesus. Father, as we partake this evening of the communion elements, help us just to remember and to contemplate your love, your grace, and all that you accomplished for us. In Jesus' name, amen.